0: You are Locked On Jets, your daily New York Jets podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome to the Locked On Jets podcast for Wednesday, September 15th, 2021. I'm your host, John B. from com. You should know that the Locked On NFL Draft podcast relaunches September 20th with brand new hosts. Eric Crocker brings the player scouting. Ryan Tracy brings the analytics. Follow the Locked On NFL Draft podcast on YouTube, the Odyssey app, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a daily podcast covering the New York Jets. We have new episodes each day, Monday through Friday. If you enjoy the show, subscribe to it where podcasts are found. We'll deliver new episodes to your device as they're posted. And leave the show a good review. Helps us out quite a bit. Do appreciate it. Today we have our weekly mailbag. Thanks to everybody who sent in questions. Our first question comes from Joe. Do you have any thoughts on Robert Sala's comments on Mims' playing time? It seems like Denzel Mims' playing time was being limited because he did not know the playbook well enough to effectively back up all three receiver spots. Is this a good enough reason to keep him off the field and have players like Jeff Smith or Braxton Berrios getting more snaps? This was a big topic of conversation the last few days within the Jets fan base because Denzel Mims barely played against Carolina, and when he did get into the game, he produced. He had a big 40-yard reception. Now, this was not the case Of Mims beating a guy down the field. It was a case where his route happened to take him to an open spot down the field and Zach Wilson hit him. But it was surprising how sparingly Mims played in this game because the Jets were down two receivers. Jamison Crowder and Keelan Cole did not play. And you would think with those guys out of the lineup, Mims would have a more prominent role on this team. It did not happen. Mims was a backup. One thing to be sitting when you have other starting caliber receivers in there, it's another to be losing time to Braxton Berrios. Robert Sala made some comments that raised some eyebrows a couple of days ago, and he talked about how Mims was a backup. And in order to get onto the field as a backup, the best way is to know all three receiver spots, all three receiver positions. Wide receiver, there really are three different positions. You have your X guy who is on the line of scrimmage. You have the Y receiver who's on the outside but plays a little bit off the line of scrimmage. And you have your slot guy who kind of lines up in the middle of the field. And a lot of people took that comment to be a criticism of Denzel Mims from Robert Sala. I I thought that was kind of overblown. Look, Mims is not a guy who really has the skill set to play the slot. And I think what Salah was really saying was that if you're a backup player and any receiver needs a rest, well, if you know how to play all three spots, you're going to get in the game. Whereas if you only know how to play the X spot, you have to wait for the X receiver to get tired. And Salah also mentioned how the Jets were not really putting together long drives so the guys were not on the field much. Nobody was going to get tired. I, th- I felt like the idea that Salah was really criticizing Mims was overblown. Maybe I'm wrong on that, but that's, that's how I viewed it. I thought he was just answering the question, and it's a pretty logical answer. Backup players typically need to be versatile. They need to be able to back up multiple spots because at a lot of positions, you don't have one backup for every single role. You have to have guys who can fill in multiple roles. And as Salah said, if you can't back up all three positions, well, that means you have to wait for the guy at your specific position to get tired. To me, that's just kind of common sense. Another thing I'll say is that I cannot tell you how many times over the last few years I've had some fan complain about Adam Gase or Todd Bowles because they're not giving an honest answer about playing time allocations. So Salah gave you an honest answer there. I think that his comments were kind of logical. Now, here's, here's what I question. Why is Braxton Berrios ahead of Denzel Mims as a starter, though? That's something that doesn't make sense to me, because I would think that the best alignment for the Jets with Cole and Crowder out would be something like Corey Davis and Mims on the outside and Elijah Moore in the slot. Meanwhile, Braxton Berrios is out there tying Corey Davis for the team lead in targets. So I don't really have an issue with the comments. I don't really have an issue with the philosophy that if you're going to be a backup, being versatile gives you a better chance to get on the field. The only thing I question is why Mims is not getting playing time over Braxton Berrios. Now, I think some Jets fans are maybe going a little overboard talking about Mims's ability. Mims, I thought, showed you some things last year, but still is a work in progress. He missed all of training camp last year. He, of course, had the issue with food poisoning this offseason that kind of set him back. It's not really clear how good Denzel Mims is. I would have to imagine, though, he's more productive than Braxton Barrios. So that's my my issue is more: why is Barrios getting playing time over Mims? It's one thing to have a Jamison Crowder get playing time over Mims, who's a proven quality receiver. It's even another thing to have a Keelan Cole who has shown some ability in the NFL, even if he's not a, a, a impact player. I don't understand why Braxton Barrios is getting snaps over Denzel Mims, though. Berrios certainly doesn't really have. Much ability, So that, that's where I question what the Jets are doing out there. Next question is from Matthew. Lots of tough injuries on Sunday. Since the Jets' most glaring weakness on defense other than depth is pass coverage, should they move May back to free safety and switch Nazrul Dean from linebacker to strong safety? Linebacker is also horribly shorthanded, but it's easier to insert a practice squad player there than a free safety in a cover three. So the question really comes down to, should the Jets move Nazril Dean, who was a late-round pick this year? He played safety in college. They moved him to linebacker. Should they move him back to safety now? And one thing I want to make clear at the beginning of this is that we should not get too crazy on the positional designations between safety and linebacker in this defense because there's a lot of overlap in the roles. But broadly speaking, I would like to avoid... Changing what Nasral Dean does too much. It's always difficult when you're a rookie. You're stepping in, you're learning all these new things. The Jets spent all of training camp, the preseason, getting Nasral Dean used to this new role. And especially for a rookie, I think it's very difficult to change a role once the season begins. I think you want to make life as easy as possible for rookies. In fact, Robert Salah has spoken in the past. I read an interview a little while back that took place during his time as 49ers defensive coordinator. And he talked about why he prefers simplicity. It's kind of a philosophical thing. And it was more about his specific scheme because his scheme is pretty simplistic, but he likes a simplistic scheme because it makes things easy for the player, for his guys. They don't need to think a whole lot. They know exactly what they need to do. And I think that If you're changing Dean's role, that kind of cuts against it. I think whenever you're dealing with younger players, keeping things as simple as possible is typically the correct way to approach things. Now, once you get into the league a couple of years and you've mastered what's been asked of you, then you can begin to expand things. Then you can talk about maybe changing players' roles, especially when you get in-season. But I think after a training camp and a preseason where you've prepared this rookie to do one thing, I would be very hesitant to change things too dramatically. And I do think that the Jets, maybe, if there was an injury within a game, and you're talking a short-term situation, maybe they'd put Dean in more of a safety role. Because if you look at their roster, they don't really have a lot of safeties. They don't really have a lot of depth there. So I think his experience of safety, if if you're ever in a really tight spot and you just need to get through a game, maybe you do it then. In an, but in an emergency situation, but if we're talking like a full term, full a full-time move, that's not something I'm necessarily sure I would be exploring if I were the Jets. My bet is that Naszrul Dean's role will not change. But if you want to bet on football this season, bet Online is your number one spot for all the pro and college football action. With a new updated site interface, even more odds, props, and contests, betonline.ag continues to be the number one source for everything football. Head to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today to receive your 100% welcome bonus. That's double your initial deposit just for signing up. Don't forget to use promo code NFL100. From football, basketball, boxing, right to your favorite Vegas casino games, don't wait to take advantage of all the amazing offers available for the 2021 season. Bet online is the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your favorite sports. Bet online, your online sportsbook experts. This is the Locked on Jets podcast on this Mailbag Wednesday. Our next question, how much do you think the inexperienced corners impacted the defensive game plan, in particular dropping the linebackers deep in the first half and giving up short passes to McCaffrey? Well, I'm not sure it's necessarily that the corners impacted the defensive game plan as much as it's the Jets built their roster this way because this is the way they want their system to work. You have to remember, the Jets had a lot of resources this offseason, and they could kind of pick which areas they wanted to emphasize. And they spent a lot of money on the defensive line. Unfortunately, a lot of the players that got the big contracts aren't playing right now. You have Carl Lawson, you have Vinnie Curry. There's a lot of money that went to those guys, especially Lawson. And they did nothing at corner. They went with a bunch of young and inexperienced players at the corner position. And what that tells me is that this is how they wanted to play. They wanted to play very conservative coverage. They wanted their defensive line to be able to dominate and get to the quarterback. And ultimately, they're willing to give up some yardage they're, they want to play a bend but don't break style where they're going to allow completions underneath. They want guys to rally to the football. They want to be able to tackle to prevent big gains from happening. But they're going to drop guys back to try and prevent the big play. And that should come as no surprise. You have to look at the defensive coaches Robert Sala has worked under. He worked under Pete Carroll in Seattle. He worked under Gus Bradley in Jacksonville. That's a philosophical thing with those guys. Those guys are very big on not allowing the big play. They play conservative coverages. They keep everything in front of them, and they have guys rally to the football. And when you play coverages like that, very soft, very conservative, you don't necessarily need big-time corners. So, and listen, it certainly helps. I mean, Seattle has had a lot of great corners through the years. And even Jacksonville, after Gus Bradley left, they had some success. They signed A.J. Boye in free agency. They had Jalen Ramsey. I'm not saying you don't want corners, but if you're going to play a conservative-style defense and your main objective is to prevent the big plays from happening, you don't necessarily need the type of impact corners that you would with, say, a Rex Ryan defense, which requires a Darrell Revis to go out and dominate on an island on a week-to-week basis. So I don't know that it's necessarily that the Jets... Adjusted their defensive scheme because they had these young and inexperienced corners. I think it's more that they decided this is the scheme that they want to play. So they adjusted their approach to roster building, and they realized, you know, we can go with some young young and inexperienced guys, and we'll try and coach them up. We'll try and get them to play as effectively as possible. But they want to have guys that can run to the ball. They want guys who can rally. I mean, I think that's part of the reason you saw them draft a couple of college safeties and move them to linebacker. They want to be fast on defense. They want guys who can cover a lot of ground. And in some ways, maybe they want to bait those checkdowns. Now, against Christian McCaffrey, they're still going to be pretty effective, but there's only one Christian McCaffrey. Lots of teams don't have him as a checkdown option, and through the course of the season, they might be able to limit some of those plays if their guys if their guys can fly to the football and maybe you you trap you, you trap an offense because you your quarterback thinks, "Oh, wow, there's a lot of room in front of him. I can just check it check it down to the running back." And then you have guys flying to the football and minimizing the gains that come from those plays. Our next question, it's only week one and one game, so there's plenty of time to change, but LaFleur stuck me as someone who sticks to his philosophy no matter the personnel a la Gace. He seemed to stick to 21 and 12 personnel even when playing catch-up, and the talent is in the wide receiver room despite the injuries. There were plenty of plays in the second half where Wesco was flexed out as a receiver and you had Mims sitting on the bench. You can't convince me Wesco is going to lead a comeback better than Mims. What are your thoughts? Well, I actually wrote an article about this yesterday on gangreennation.com, and it talked about how extensively the Jets used tight ends in this game. In fact, in the first week of the season, only Atlanta and New England used more one running back, two tight end, two wide receiver personnel groupings. And it did not make a lot of sense because New England and Atlanta both invested heavily at the tight end position this offseason. The Falcons used an early pick in the draft, one of the top picks in the draft, to take Kyle Pitts, and New England signed a pair of expensive tight ends in free agency. The Jets, meanwhile, invested all their resources at wide receiver. Yet in this game, they used wide receivers less than your typical team, and they used tight ends more than your typical team. And even though the Jets did have some injuries at wide receiver part of the reason you invest at a position is that you have depth so you can withstand injuries. You know, I think it's a little too early to make sweeping proclamations about Mike LaFleur. And one other thing about Mike LaFleur, and this goes for Robert Salah, it goes for most of the coaching staff. There is going to be some patience required. This is a group of rookie coaches. Sala is a rookie head coach. LaFleur is a young rookie offensive coordinator. I mean, LaFleur has a little bit of experience as an offensive coordinator years ago at a small college, but this is a new thing for him, and there are going to be some growing pains. These guys are going to have to learn, and it's a different situation with Gase. See, there's, there's a reason I did not have any patience with Gase. That's because he was an experienced coach. In fact, when Gase was hired, the Jets told us about how he had experience in the AFC East, so there were not any growing pains. He should be able to hit the ground running from day one. When you hire guys with less experience, I think it requires more patience because you're essentially saying, we think these guys can be really good down the line. But whenever you do a job for the first time, there's always a learning curve. Any job I've ever had, I've been better year one, year three than I was year one. I've been better year five than I was year three. There are just certain things you can only learn by doing so. I have more patience with this coaching staff. I usually say when you're talking about a general manager, when you're talking about a head coach, that you have to give these guys four years. I'm not saying that there are zero exceptions. Sometimes somebody's so spectacularly bad that you have to get rid of them sooner than four years. But, you know, I took a lot of grief for that a couple years back when I kept saying after bad seasons for Todd Bowles and Mike McCagnin, the Jets should keep them and give them a chance to grow. There were lots of people who wanted to get rid of them after 2016, 2017. But I think you got to give guys time to grow. And unless you're exceptionally bad, unless you're just so bad that there's no just there's no path forward for you, I think you give give guys time. And for each successive year, in order to make an early change, you have to be much worse. So you have to be the threshold for being bad is higher year two than it is year three. Get rid of you year after year two. You have to be so unbelievably bad that like you can't possibly conceive of continuing with this guy. And to be fired after year one, it just has to be a total disaster. Yeah, it, so you have to be worse year one than year two to get fired. And you have to be worse year two than year three. The threshold goes down every year as you get a better idea of what somebody's capable of. But it's one game with Mike LaFleur. I think we got to give him a little bit more time. You cannot, however, defend the performance of Mike LaFleur or the Jets offense in that week one game against Carolina. In fact, I would not have blamed you if you were watching the Jets game on your TV, but then you had another device showing you a better game, or maybe you were watching a show with your neighbor's login. Well, I want to tell you about a simpler way to get all that entertainment you have without the hassle and a great way to finally get your TV together. It's called Direct TV Stream. And it brings your live TV and on-demand favorites together like never before. So you can watch your favorite sports movies and shows all in one place. That means no more juggling remotes and no need to ever buy another device. And the best part is that there's no annual contract. So get rid of the clutter and the confusion and get your TV together with Direct TV Stream. You can learn more at directtv.com. Again, that's directtv.com. A compatible device is required and content varies by package. And I'm sure Mike LaFleur is at the office late this week trying to figure out what went wrong against Carolina and trying to build a better game plan for New England this week. Maybe you're late at the office this week, too, and you might want a Bilt Bar. Bilt Bar is the best tasting protein bar ever. Built Bar has nine delicious flavors, so there's something for everybody. And if you haven't tried all the flavors, you can get a mixed box where you get two each of the nine flavors. Not only are these Bilt Bar flavors the best tasting, they're healthy, too. So go to BuiltBar.com, and if you use promo code LOCKED15, you'll get 15% off your first order. Again, this promo code LOCKED15, it's one word with no space, L-O-C-K-E-D, number one, number five, for 15% off at BuiltBar, B-U-I-L-T-B-A-R.com. Locked on Jets podcast on this mailbag Wednesday. Our next question, rebuild is a common word for New York Jets fans. But how concerned are you that the revamped offensive line is not very good? And how concerned are you with Beckton injury and health-wise, over the long term? Well, rebuild is a very common word for New York Jets fans, but it frequently is misapplied. I talked about this on Monday, how in recent seasons, the Jets have used rebuilding as an excuse for losing, but if you look closely at what they've been doing... They frequently have not been rebuilding. They've just been bad. Whereas this year, things are a little bit different because you have the youngest roster in the NFL, you have first and second year players in prominent roles, and there are going to be growing pains. The Jets have actually committed to a rebuild this year for the first time in quite a while. And you heard Joe Douglas and Robert Sala before the season kind of play down expectations, and that's always a key. That's always a giveaway when before the season you hear the general manager and the head coach tell you, you know, it may you may need some patience. That's different from when you're going into a season talking about how you liked how you finished last year, talking about we can go to the playoffs. Sometimes coaches and general managers are honest with you before the season, and you just need to listen. Now, as far as the offensive line goes, the first week of the season is always tricky because it's always difficult to figure out what's a genuine concern versus maybe somebody had a bad week and there are some things from this game that did not go well for the Jets that I'm not all that concerned about and then there are things that I'm worried about and I'm worried about the offensive line that might be the top of my list when it, when we're talking about things that I'm worried about because of how bad that they they looked and also because they did lose Makai Becton it's one thing to play that poorly and then say okay well These guys did not play together in preseason. Elijah Vera Tucker missed time. Maybe we'll get some better continuity going forward. But not not only did you get a horrible performance, but you now are entering week two with even less continuity because you're putting a bunch of guys who have not played together on a, a newly configured offensive line. I think you have to be worried about it. I'm not saying I'm necessarily panicked at this point, but it's a big concern right now. And You hope that things work out, but I don't see any way you can't be concerned about the way that unit performed and the fact that you're taking Beckton out. Now, how worried am I about Beckton long term when you're talking about health? I mean, I have some concerns, but if you're talking about the injury he suffered and he was just placed on IR yesterday, which means he'll be out at least three weeks. It sounds like it's probably like a four to six week deal before he's back. The injury he suffered against Carolina was just one of those things that can happen on the offensive line. That's not really an injury-prone thing. That can happen to anybody. It's not like he pulled a muscle or something like that. Not, not a soft tissue injury. Listen, the offensive line's a dangerous place. You have guys suffering knee injuries all the time because they roll the wrong way. You know, they get pushed the wrong way. The Some joint bends the wrong way. You know, get rolled on somebody. Those things could happen to anybody. Those things happen to guys who are viewed as durable. So I, I don't think you can... I don't think it's fair to say that Beckton's injury is alarming from the standpoint he's injury-prone. I have some concerns over his ability to stay healthy, but not based on anything that happened Sunday. I don't think it's fair to say this was an injury-prone thing. It wasn't. Our next question, would you give any credit to the theory that Carolina had a significant advantage on defense due to everything James Morgan would have provided them ahead of this game? Obviously, there were some pass-blocking issues regardless, but at times in that game, especially against the run, they seemed to know what was coming. So James Morgan, who was a Jets fourth-round pick in 2020, was cut before the season, he signed with Carolina's practice squad before the game, and everybody thought, oh, he's going to give all the Jets information to Carolina. I think stuff like that tends to get really, really overblown. I don't think Morgan played a substantial role in Carolina's victory. Listen, he was not even in the facility as the Jets were preparing for this game and the practice in the lead-up to this game, really narrowing down their game plan Carolina's got film on the Jets. Uh, Carolina probably had some idea of what the Jets were going to do. I know we have a new offensive coordinator installing a new system, but we all knew we all had a good idea of what the system would be. They just outplayed the Jets. I, I don't really think that I think that stuff like that makes for a good narrative, but it doesn't pan out. Typically, And listen James Morgan did not show a great grasp of the Jets' offense while he was here, and he actually had access to the to the, a playbook. So I, I'm listen. I'm sure they asked him for some information, but was that what made the difference? No, I think the Panthers just outplayed the Jets in that game. And our last question: With Adam Gase and Mike Mcagnon now out of the picture, do you see the heat being turned up on Joe Douglas? His 2020 draft class does not look good in year two, and his attempt to rebuild the offensive line looks even worse. Much like John Idzik, I think Douglas is finding out that the teardown approach is incredibly difficult to execute. You can only sell the fan base and ownership hope of a brighter future for so long. By years three and four, we should begin seeing tangible results. Well, I'll say this. The best thing that ever happened to Joe Douglas was being hired by the Jets at a point where Adam Gase was taking over as head coach because Gase was an easy target for the Jets losing for the media and the fa- especially the fans the last couple of years. It kind of allowed Douglas to not take any heat. Yeah, look, the heat is going to be turned up on Joe Douglas. The question is how the season progresses and the progress the team shows along the way. You know, if you have another two-win season, then yeah, Douglas is going to get a lot of heat. Whereas if the team continues to show improvement over the course of the year, maybe some of these rookies, some of these second-year players begin to develop, it will be less. I don't think Douglas is going to be fired after this season. I think he's savvier with the media than Idzik. That was a big part of the reason Idzik did not last, is he just did not want to play the media game. And you have to. Listen, I'm not saying the media should have the the impact it does, but part of being a general manager means that you're the public face of the team. And I think Douglas gets that in a way maybe Idzik did not. And you have to remember that Douglas's first year was not really a first year. The team was already built by then. And even last year, he had less room to to maneuver. So this is really probably like year one or two of Douglas. I could could buy the argument it's year two, because even though he did not have a lot of room to navigate last offseason, that's frequently the case with first year general managers. Lots of GMs get hired and they can't really do anything the first year just because the team's cap situation is not great. So if you want to tell me this is Douglas's second year, then I could buy that. But I go back to what I said a little bit earlier. I think you got to give four years, maybe five, to really get a good handle on whether Joe Douglas is going to work out. And this is the thing that kind of like makes me chuckle because the general manager is really a long-term job. The question is, can they build a team over the long haul? And that means you have to give them the long haul. And, you know, anybody telling me right now that Joe Douglas is going to be the greatest general manager the Jets have ever had. You can't really say that. But at the same note, anybody telling me Joe Douglas is going to fail, well, you don't really know that either. We need to wait and see to find out how good he really is at his job, and we won't know that for a couple of years. Listen, yeah, the 2020 draft class isn't looking that great right now. A few months back, people would have told me the 2020 draft clas- class looks phenomenal. A general manager's career is typically not determined by one draft class. Every dra- general manager has bad draft classes. It's a longer-term question of, can they build a consistent winner? And I think we're st- still too early in this process to say. But listen, if the Jets lose, there's going to be fan frustration directed somewhere. And it's never going to be at the rookie quarterback. And if Zach Wilson keeps taking the hits that he took on Sunday, an obvious target's going to be Joe Douglas, because that offensive line's not looking as good as it should have been, especially considering all the resources the Jets threw into it. So we'll see. But again, it depends. part of it depends on how the season goes. You know, if the Jets don't have a 2014-type disaster, then that was, that was insect's problem, is that the team was just so bad. The team was unwatchable that season. Jets lost on Sunday. It was not an unwatchable performance. So if you see progress, if you see young players begin to improve, then, you know, I think fans may have less of a reaction. And, uh, But again, I go back to this. I think that their patience is required. Patience doesn't last forever. At some point, you do need to produce. At some point, wins and law, you need to begin winning games, but I still think we're at the point where we're still pretty early in Douglas's tenure, so we need to wait and see. Anyway, that's all for our show today. Thank you for listening. This has been the Locked On Jets podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. As always, if you enjoy the show, subscribe to it and leave it a good review. Have a great Wednesday, everybody. We'll be back tomorrow to talk more Jets.